Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast and our Inside the Sports Car Paddock show brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. This is our 21st episode. It can drink, it can vote, it can do just about everything having turned 21. Our guests this week, the amazing Jeff Brown as always, lead off with Jeff coming out of Watkins Glen International where the Core Autosport Nissan Onroad DPI did not get to play for as long as it had hoped. A little bit of a quick recap of what took place there, but also looking forward to this weekend's IMSA race at Canadian Tire Motorsports Park, a.k.a. MoSport. Jeff giving us a bit of a technical rundown of what he and every other race engineer should be looking for in terms of setup and needs to get around the amazing, amazing Canadian road course. Then we close on a look at TPMS or TMS tire pressure monitoring systems something that I worked with in the 1990s and early 2000s when I was an assistant race engineer then also worked with afterwards when I was a race engineer with a variety of other teams and Jeff using those today as do so many other race engineers interesting to speak about the history of them not just the background but also the present meaning how they get used and the ways that tire pressure information real time coming across telemetry is used by race engineer along with some other aspects too within the data system to help make decisions and shape what's done and what gets changed going into a pit stop etc etc then we move on to james clay good friend old friend of mine as well talking about his amazing weekend actually leading into the amazing weekend where he was competing both at Watkins Glen in the Michelin Pilot Challenge Series and also trying to go up the big hill at Pikes Peak in his BMW his M4 I think he went something like 25 seconds faster this year than he did last year Uh, so he spoke with DailySportsCar.com Stephen Kilby following that conversation DSC's Graham Goodwin my week in sports cars co-pilot catches up with John Doonan after Mazda's big, big win at Watkins Glen. Then we move into the final two interviews, both done by Steven. First is with Eric Carab, team principal for the Motorsports in Action Michelin Pilot Challenge team, talking about the season so far, thoughts on running the McLaren 570S GT4 against some, maybe some newer cars and also thoughts on a move potentially for MIA to GTD. And then we wrap with Pierre Nicolet, also, I guess, a manufacturer principal owned by his father. Uh, Pierre Nicolet speaks about Liget's upcoming LMP3 car, their freshening of their LMP3 car, uh, which is out testing right now, and also shares the company's thoughts on both Hypercar and DPI 2.0. So we have Jeff Brown, James Clay, John Doonan, Eric Carob, and Pierre Nicolet to close this week's episode of Inside the Sports Car Paddock, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Jeff Brown, it is time for our weekly look into the world of motor racing technology, engineering, strategy, electronics, and who knows what else. We are speaking with you this fine Monday as you are driving from awesome, super awesome Watkins Glen to, I'd say, equally awesome Mo Sport 
a.k.a. Canadian Tire Motorsport Park. Tell us a little bit about your technical and engineering weekend at Watkins Glen, and then we'll kick off this week's new show bits on what you're going to look forward to in terms of setup and mindset for most sport and then close on tire monitoring systems. Awesome. Awesome. Well, good to be with you. Um, yeah, cruising up, uh, get, getting close to Buffalo on my way, uh, driving. It's the glamour of motor racing. Um, guys are at the track finishing up toward, um, Mossport, uh, this afternoon, ended up ultimately broke an input shaft uh at about halfway a little over halfway um i think we had okay pace to the with the cadillacs i think we were equal to most of the good the good cadillacs we had nothing for the mazdas or the acuras those guys were in a league of their own um really congratulations to the mazdas and john dunan and everybody who's been working so hard there to to you know, get, get that race win. Um, I spent uh, about a year with Sylvain Tremblay on the to help them out um, after my stint at level five and before core. And so I have a lot of uh, respect for the, the people at Mazda and all that they've done. So I think the whole paddock was really, really happy to see them win um, if we couldn't. So, yeah, we're now we're off to Mossport, um, thinking about that. And uh, fortunately, it's probably the two back-to-back races we have all year where the setups um, are the closest or could be the closest. The tracks have similar characteristics, high-speed, flowing, high-downforce kind of tracks, pretty smooth. Mossport is a little bumpier, a little uh, more weathered, We w- I would say. Um, a little bit less grip, but the setup's kind of what works at one pretty not a bad place to at least start out uh, to unload with, which helps the teams. We don't have to do massive, you know, uh, setup changes from when we don't have much time in between. And most teams are trying to at least squeeze in the 4th of July, although that's setup day this weekend. So we'll all be in Canada on the 4th of July, which is kind of weird. But, um, yeah, I think uh, it's it, it, the, the tracks kind of relate to each other. It's not like going from, you know, Detroit to Watkins Glen where it's completely different. So looking at unique items we would think of for a most sport compared to Watkins Glen. I mean, I'm trying to think of any or many and there aren't, I mean, there's, there's maybe a section or two where the rolling speed is lower, but I don't know. I mean, they, they seem, as, as you mentioned, they seem pretty darn close in ideology. What do you find from a setup standpoint? Is there something at most sport that you prioritize maybe more than you would at Watkins Glen to either produce lap time or a car that races extremely well? Yeah. Well, yes. And one of the kind of a thing that many people might not think is a setup item, but it it does become a setup item is braking. And Mossport is very, very unique in that it's the by far and away the lightest braking, least used braking track we go to. Super fast. But because it's super fast, you don't slow down very much. You, You use the brakes. Really, you use the brakes 
kind of hard, pretty hard into turn five, which is the, the double right kind of almost like a hairpin that leads onto the long back straightaway. And that's about it. You don't, you, you hardly touch the brakes anyplace else. So where normally like Watkins Glen, a good example, we have four, we have four brake ducts in the front of our nose on the, on the Ligier Nissan and two in the rear. Those brake ducts were completely open, no blanking, no tape, no blocking of them at all to keep the brakes cool enough. At Mossport, they will almost be completely closed. We'll open them up just enough to let a little air in to keep the uprights cool and to flow a little air across the brakes, but we'll almost close them off completely. And that's really a setup item more than people think because carbon brakes work in a fairly narrow range of temperature. You can get them too hot and you can definitely have them too cool and they just don't stop. And that really affects the, the, the grip of the brake and how the brake is performing really affects the entry to the corner when the driver puts the brake on, whether he gets the proper braking um, retardation that he's expecting or whether the rears grab a little more because they're a little hotter or the fronts aren't um, hot enough and then they don't grip good and, and, and that changes the balance, the actual handling of the car tremendously based on how the brakes um, are operating. So that's a huge difference between the two tracks right there and it does actually affect setup. How about from an aero standpoint? I know that when I think of a Watkins Glen setup, there are some very long straights those long straights also lead into by and large some fairly high speed corners so it's not as if you can trim out like mad what about from a mo sport standpoint jeff because if we think of passing zones coming off of the back straight into the final uh right left right complex onto uh the the front straight and pit lane area and whatnot I mean, that's where we tend to see most passing coming into that super high-speed right-hander, but knowing that the rest of the track is super rolling high-speed, too, cornering as well, is there any greater low-drag, low-downforce balance you can go for at a most sport over a Watkins Glen, or not at all? Uh, so you know, you've just defined the compromise of Mossport and, to some extent, Watkins Glen. It's... You know, passing into turn eight, as you said, at the end of the back straightaway is where where you can try to get it done. It's actually where we uh, where Colin was able to make the pass for the win there for us last year. But it's pretty hairy to do it around the outside. So you'd like to get it done early. So that would call for trimming the car out. Then you got so if you do that, then you look at speed to be able to catch a guy that you need to try to pass and you need to be good in turn one, two, three, which are the high speed, no bridge, you know, gear, top of fourth gear kind of corners. So it's that compromise and be determined by where you qualify or where you expect to be running. If, if you were to run out front, you might, you know, you might be able to run your high downforce setup. And if you were running toward the back and you needed knew you needed to pass your only choice might be to kind of trim out hope you can get a really good run out of 5a and 5b there uh, onto the back straight away getting the guy's draft and have a, a 
low enough drag to be able to kind of pop out and get him before you get into eight because he's a high downforce car is going to lead you uh, and pull away from eight all the way to turn five again. So it almost is like two sections of the racetrack, the high speed, high downforce stuff to turn five, and then the load where you would like low drag down the back straight away. So it, it'll be interesting for people to watch how that interaction happens and who's able to pass where. Watkins Glen, a little more straightforward uh, because you're, uh, you have the one long straightaway leading up to the bus stop where you can trim out for. But if you do that, you're probably pretty much toast the rest of the racetrack. So uh, more of a compromise and, and a unique challenge um, to, for Mossport and, and based on where you expect to run or where you're starting, where you qualify. Well, let's close, Jeff, on the new tech item we wanted to cover. It's not new to the world, just new to us discussing this on the 21st episode of Inside the Sports Car Paddock, all led off by a certain Jeff Brown. Um, tire monitoring systems. I recall, I'm trying to remember the exact first time I worked with them, mid 90s or so and they weren't new then they were well granted uh everything tends to make its way into formula one indycar or something like that first and then filter down to the rest of the series so at least as an assistant engineer learning my trade in some of the junior open wheel formulas here in the u.s again i seem to recall mid 90s or so the first time that i interacted with uh, TMS and just phenomenal. Hey, whoa, we could actually like learn things about the tires while they're on track doing tire like things. These have obviously since become almost standard equipment on every road car you purchase today. So that's pretty interesting. But why don't we walk through Jeff a little bit of background on TMS uh, when they came in? the purpose that they served originally from an engineering standpoint, and then how it's evolved and how you use it today on pit lane. Yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous technology that's um, really was driven early from a, as a safety item. Um, you know, a driver in the past would get a, a puncture, uh, whether it was a piece of debris or a tire that just failed due to overloading or something like that. And you'd get a, a puncture, and the driver really wouldn't feel it at first. But what happens is the air comes out of the tire slowly. The tire then fails because it doesn't have any structure. The thing to remember is that the, the tire structure is really uh, gained by the, the air pressure that's inside of it. That's what gives it its ability to sustain the loads. If that air pressure goes away, the tire fails usually at the sidewall to tread joint there and then blows out. So a lot of times with a puncture, you, you would have some time to be able to react to it, but um, you'd need to know that you have a puncture. And so when they came up with a, a sensor that would go in the wheel and it's basically attached to the inside of the valve stem um, and it's just a pressure, a pressure sensor. The tricky part is, obviously, you can't connect a wire to that because the tire's spinning. So they had to come up with battery-operated pressure sensors that were, first of all, light. 
that wouldn't affect the balance of the tire and the wheel and that would also be able to transmit when this tire is spinning. And they came up with those sensors that then transmit the pressure inside the tire and also now the temperature of the air inside the tire. They transmit it to a little receiver in the chassis. And so that's like a... Um, uh, a Bluetooth or a RFID or a low range um, frequency transmitter that transmits from the sensor to the receiving antenna in the car, then that is wired into the telemetry system that's then transmitted to the pits so that myself and my tire engineer, Steve Johnson, can look at and monitor the pressures as they build. That information is also displayed on the dashboard for our driver so that he can see his tire pressure buildup as um, as we bolt on new tires and the tire pressures build. They can see if he's using the tires too hard, if the pressures are getting too high. Um, and we see all that in the pits as well. And then, of course, the big thing is if we do get a puncture, you'll see immediately the pressure going down in one of the tires. And... Our, our, our Steve, our tire guy will notice it. I'll notice it. There's alarms on the dash where the driver notices it. And they, it's prevented many, many serious crashes by the, the safety aspect. There's also some performance aspects that are tremendous that we can get into as well. So being able to know the tire pressure really became something that from a safety standpoint, huge in particular and i know that this is a sports car driven show but on ovals in particular this became something that was highly valuable not as if a crash on a on a road or street course is uh, less of a concern but if we're thinking indianapolis 500 pocono uh texas motor speedway something where indy cars in particular are traveling 200 plus miles an hour uh knowing that you have something going down uh, or, or, you know, something where you can start to see a trend like, oh, we're losing a little bit of pressure uh, corner by corner or, hey, this just happened instantly, a big drop. The ability to tell that driver uh, over the radio, slow down, stop, whatever it is, massive, uh, not only in terms of driver safety, but also not writing off huge amounts of money as well. So, that became invaluable. And so in using the tire monitoring uh, devices through the software, uh, if we're looking back in the day, it would have been through Pi. Today, you can name a variety, whether it's Cosworth, Motec, etc., AIM, uh, where you would set your uh, tire monitoring alarm to work in a certain range, right? If you know, Jeff, that you are expecting your front tires, I'll just say we'll go 25 PSI is the hot pressure you're looking at. You might have your uh, data engineer, your assistant engineer, set some sort of minimum threshold, not necessarily maximum threshold, uh, but uh, some sort of minimum threshold that's going to trigger an alarm to tell you uh, that something's happening. We also, again, if we use a little bit of this oval stuff, because you've done so much of it in your life as well, you might also assign in these big ovals, you might assign one of your, you know, data engineers, or it might be a mechanic, somebody, 
stare at this screen <laughs> and look at the four tire exactly. pressure channels and we're not waiting for alarms if you see any fluctuations or something tap me on the shoulder so just share a little bit yep. about that yep well and that's that's exactly um where you know it, it was a safety thing at first like you said <clears throat> and now it's become it's allowed us to operate our cars better more efficiently and make changes quicker because here's here's <clears throat> what happened in the past you would run <clears throat> excuse me you would run a um a set of tires the driver would you know during the race you would run a set of tires driver might describe the handling um or you might have your hot target, like you said, 25 PSI, where you knew that worked really good in practice, and that's where you wanted to hit. You run your first set of tires, come in for a pit stop, take the tires off. Tire guy runs over there. Tire engineer runs over, measures the pressure, and they're, the fronts are 28 PSI. You're like, oh, man, too high. We know that's going to cause understeer. That's why the driver had the understeer problem. Oh, but the driver's out with the second set of tires now at the same pressures that the first set were. So you're going to make your tire pressure adjustment to the third set. You're going to take some out of the front to get them to come in at 25, where you know the car handles the best. So you're a set behind because he's out there. You have to read the first set to know that you're off. With the TPMS sensors now, my tire guy, Steve, he's sitting there. He has a computer in front of him. You know, tire guys in the old days were these tire buster guys all black and nasty and dirty and everything and with uh you know the, it was those kind of guys well steve's an engineer he's looking at those tire pressures watching exactly what they're doing watching how their uh, live pressures as the car goes around the racetrack he's watching in sports cars you have the unique case of two three or four different drivers driving the same car they all drive differently and they use the tires differently so steve's looking at how each driver is using the tires. Okay, this driver uses the front tire more, or boy, he really leans on the left rear and it heats that up. I'll have to take some pressure out for him on the left rear when he gets in and the next driver is gonna do this so I know what adjustments to make. And then as the car's running, he'll watch and you'll see, wow, today's conditions, or, you know, boy, he's running in traffic a lot and he's lost downforce on the front of the car. Therefore, the front of the car is sliding and it's heating up the front tires more. I need to back off the tire pressures on the front on the next set. So he can proactively adjust tire pressures for the set that's going to go on the car rather than being one set behind because of the um, tire pressure monitoring system that we have. So it, it becomes a critical component of our telemetry to be able to react much quicker to handling changes um, just like you would when we can see what he's doing with the throttle or what he's doing with the brake or um, how the car is balanced looking at our push rod loads. It's just another one of those components. But with tires, it lets you get one step ahead, which has been fantastic for performance. It was better when I was the only guy that had that and nobody else did or very few others did. (laughs) <laughs> but but now everybody has it, so it's the ball ball game is equal, and now we're all using the same thing. Well, let's close on this aspect, Jeff. 
and it's we'll probably get into this as a separate uh, topic in the future as well also knowing how again if we just talk more traditional process and it i shouldn't even say just traditional because it may be someone's reality today running their their club racing car uh or who knows what but for those who might be fortunate to have tire monitoring system in place uh on cars that aren't in full pro series like indycar imsa etc the normal routine is you might be getting pressure information but you're going to come in and stop on pit lane and whether it's you or a crew member going to grab your uh temperature probe probe the surface of the tires give you also uh, temperature data across the carcass to then marry with the pressure information to help you figure out what you want to do change wise not just obviously tire inflation but camber caster and whatnot we also though if we move into you know mostly the higher levels of pro racing it's not uncommon for teams to have at least one infrared sensor pointed at the tire surface in some instances you have an array so instead of just getting say one beam pointed at the center of the tire possibly an array of multiple infrared sensors pointed at the tire so effectively getting real-time rolling tire probe information if you want to think of it that way how do you then jeff if we're talking you know this past weekend or uh, any other event how would an engineer make use of your tire pressure information coming to you live through telemetry plus live infrared information as well part of me thinks it'd be really good part of me also thinks your brain might explode because (laughs) it's a lot to process yeah it, it it you can definitely get data overload and that's you know that's why there's um currently at core that's why there's me and Tyler and Lee and Henry and Steve, our tire guy, there's five of us looking at incoming data. And I really should add Ian, our crew chief, is who monitors all the incoming brake data to adjust the brake blinking. So there's six of us looking at incoming data and still we're overloaded at times. So it can be too much and you just have to start throwing out the the stuff that isn't significant at that moment, but know where to look at it if it suddenly becomes significant. So for tire temperatures, it's another piece. It's probably more historical, historically important than real-time important. Um, but it gives us the, as you said, the temperature of the surface of the tire, infrared uh, sensors normally, <clears throat> and even they're they're using some photographic um, heat sensing cameras now that will do, you know, like people have seen the cameras that come around in your house to take pictures and it shows the red spots and the, <clears throat> the blue spots where you're leaking air under your doors and stuff like that. But we have the same kind of picture, thermal imaging pictures that you can do of the tire surface and actually record that data. And that's helpful on a historical basis. If you have, uh, you're looking for trends. Oh, well, we like, the car really worked good when the temperature across the tire was this much. The inside temperature was 20 degrees hotter than the outside temperature. Um, and that seems to be the right camber angle when we can get that. 
and then you and your car really works good then and then you go to another track and you're seeing only 10 degrees across the tire you might say well we know 20 was better normally we could add some more camber to get that uh temperature spread that we want so you're you're looking at from that standpoint kind of developing over the experience with a tire we're, we're new to the michelin tire this year after running continentals for years in, in imsa and so a lot of teams are building that database and those tire pressure and and as you said the temperature sensors become part of going into that database to understand where that tire really likes to operate on your particular car where it operates on our Ligier might be different than where it works well on a on a Delara or a Orica or a Multimatic Mazda. So we're trying to use the temperature sensors to, to give us that and then check to see whether we're operating in the range that we think is the proper best range for that tire on our car. And dear listeners to Inside the Sports Car Paddock, once again, we just got smarter. All courtesy of our pal Jeff Brown. You know, I don't mind stating this from time to time just because it makes me smile, it makes me happy, but I'm very proud to have known you for, well, this is the scary part. Um, Alma worked, I mean, what, 2021 will be 30 years, I think, when we first met and worked together. Um, Probably. We're old guys, Marshall. Well, I know. My wife tells me I got to dye my beard again because my hair hasn't gone silver, but my beard certainly is, uh, yeah, (laughs) a little silverback-ish. But anyways, just glad that we can do this and keep doing this and enjoy this my friend having known each other for a long time having had the uh, good fortune to work together and and whatnot so uh pretty cool that uh even many many years down the road we're still finding fun stuff to do together even even if it's just talking about sporty cars and technology on a weekly basis it's it's fun i enjoy it it's uh it's been fun working with you and it's no different than when we were uh engineering together on Formula Atlantic cars uh, at Pfeiffer Ridge Racing or working together to try to do a, a good podcast that people enjoy. It's always, uh, it's always a pleasure working with you. Well, going to look forward to our conversation after most sport. And, you know, I don't know how many folks come up to you. You say that folks come up to you in the paddock and say that they enjoy these conversations. So maybe if uh, while you're in Canada, if anybody has any ideas or if you are a Canadian listener planning to be at most sport and happen to uh, see Jeff, give us some more ideas. I and mean, we already have a, a spreadsheet that's growing. But if we have a, a special recommendation from Canada coming out of Canada for next week's show, would really look forward to that, too. So. All right, my friend. Yeah. Well, hopefully input shafts, output shafts, all kinds of shafts stay together uh, so uh, you and the team can play a little bit longer this weekend. Look forward to our conversation here in about a week's time. And thanks, as always, for making some time, Jeff. Sounds great. No problem. Looking forward to the Canadian fans. Lots of people at uh, Watkins Glen were like, hey, love your Marshall Pruitt podcast. And, and so... Uh, you know, it seems to be working good. The Canadian fans are super knowledgeable. They always have been about sports car racing. So, yeah, let's do, let's make that one. Uh, somebody somebody in Canada has got to come up to me and come up with a topic, and we'll make sure we get that next week. We'll do the entire show in metric units. So, something <laughs> like that. Like All right, I'll brother. Like Sounds good. Thanks, Marshall. 
Welcome James Clay, he's uh, from, from Beer World in the Michelin Pilot Challenge and I think it's safe to say James before we get into talking specifically about Watkins Glen and, and the title battle that you've got in your hands there, um, it's going to be quite a weekend for you, uh, tell the listeners just what you're up to this weekend because you're not just going to Watkins Glen are you? No, no, it's in fact I've, I've been out in, uh, in Colorado Springs or, or uh, Pikes Peak right next door. Um, we're, we're in the middle of the 97th running of the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb. So, uh, we were testing there last weekend, um, and then back out, uh, have been on the mountain since Monday, um, just actually finished up the, the morning run up the mountain, um, this Thursday morning, starting at three o'clock. Um, so we, we were running at the, at the break of dawn and five. Tell us a little bit about what you're going to be driving at Pikes Peak. That car is getting prepped and I'm airport right now to uh to head to Watkins. Sorry, cut out there. What what's the what's the car you're you're participating in? Um so we are it's a very similar car. Uh it's a BMW M4 GT4. Um same same spec with just a couple of small differences um that we're running in at Watkins as well. That's gonna be quite a comparison then for you to, to take on something like Pikes Peak and Watkins Glen the same weekend in, in pretty much the same machinery. Absolutely, it's uh, you know we we had this uh, we had this monster build going. It's it's uh, kind of two years in the making, and unfortunately, three days short of, of coming to fruition for this year. So we it, it wasn't really the the car that we planned to bring to the mountain, um, but we had one in the shop, and it was easy enough to prep it and get it ready. And it's it's just been absolutely flawless. So um, yeah, and, and then it's the same car that I'll be racing this weekend. So um, you know, I love continuity. What's the the sort of the preparation for this been like? How long ago did you decide that this was actually possible to do both events on the same weekend? Um, I've been uh, I've been piecing this together for almost a year. So and and it's um, you know unfortunately that just meant that I recognized they were kind of at the same time and I just was going to figure it out and it really wasn't until um, maybe four or five days ago that I put together all the logistics and all the flights and so forth to actually make it happen you know there's it's kind of almost all the time where there's a will there's a way and um you know i i i had some you know some certainly some expensive options to to make it all happen but i think luckily it's it's actually um it's actually been fairly reasonable and, and no uh no private flights or anything like that to to make it happen so yeah lucked out so just for for the listener's sake, are you a regular at Pikes Peak? Is this something that you've always wanted to do and had your mindset on this weekend, particularly or this year? What what's what's the planning behind it been like? You know, it's it's been. Um, I, I I ran it first in 2017, two years ago. Um, Optima Batteries, which is our title sponsor for the for the Michelin Pilot Challenge car as well, um, it kind of gave me the nudge of you know, hey, we're looking for some some key events and, and just unique things um, and. You know, it, it's it was on my list um, as a kid. I used to watch it on, uh, you know, on, on whatever um, Speed Vision at one point. Uh, before then, it was probably Wild World of Sports. But you know, I'd seen it as a kid. It, it kind of made a mark, and it, you know, it's always seemed like something cool to do. But um, really, a big thanks to Optima Batteries for for making me think a little bit outside the box. Because honestly, it's not something I I would have probably put the pieces together to actually do. Uh, until that 2017 year, and then of course in 2017, um, first year on the mountain, and, and it did fairly well. Um, but brought a brought a naturally aspirated car. And when you're when you're 
running that high up. We start at 9,000 feet above sea level and race to 14,000. Um, you've got to bring something with forced induction that, that makes its own makes its own altitude or, or atmospheres for you. Um, so we've we've uh, we've been putting this monster build um, in in the works since then. And again, it's just it's just taken forever because it's it's grown along the way. And you know, I, I can't wait to run it. Certainly, it'll be on the mountain next year. Um, but you know, I. I'll probably be there for the foreseeable future, uh, just so I can make this thing pay off and make it, you know, get it truly dialed in for for you know what's truly a unique event. Mm. Obviously, p- the big part of the challenge is the mountain itself, but you'll be up against obviously other competitors. What are there plenty of GT4 cars that you're going to be, you know, up against, or is it is it a mixture? Yeah. It's 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 not, uh, you know, there's no one formula for for cars on that mountain. Um, and there's there's actually some GT4 spec cars um, in a Porsche Cup um, version, um, you know, with with that Cayman GT4, um, and they have four or five of them. Those, um, but of course, you, you know, I know after we we know about BOP um, with this with this audience. Um, the BOP at fourteen thousand feet is worlds different than it is at, at you know normal racetrack level, and there's there's no way to even. Um, have parity with a uh, you know with a naturally aspirated Cayman and a uh, BMW with a couple of turbos on it, it and so we we just really are different cars up there. Um, but the, the the best thing about the GT4 is it's just a well prepared race car. So um, you know it's it's maybe not exactly what I choose to take. I'd, I'd probably rather have something with big turbos on it, um, you know, much bigger than factory and um, that really makes you know eight or nine hundred horsepower. But um, you know when when you don't get that car built in time, then and you have a perfectly good race car sitting in the shop, it, it's a it's a great option to take. Um, you know, a lot of competitors are are in the you know kind of mountain focused builds, or are certainly the ones at the pointy end of the of the, of the field are going to be in, in cars that are are you know truly made to be on the mountain. But you know, we're going to do the best we can, and, and so far we've been doing pretty well. So, how does the schedule work this week? Um, how many time? How much time are you going to spend at each venue? Um, so I started, uh, so we started Monday on the mountain, um, but just run it up and down in a rental car, um, at Pikes Peak, one, you know, one of the most logistically challenging events anyway, aside from combining it with something else, um, we're on the mountain at about three, three thirty in the morning. Um, we've got the car unloaded, ready to run at five in the morning. Our, our day on the road is done by eight thirty or nine in the morning. Um, that's when the mountain opens up to tourist traffic on every day, except for race day on, on this coming Sunday. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, we've we've run a different section of the mountain each day, um, qualified on, on Wednesday. Um, and then there's a there is a practice session on uh, on Friday. It's a, just a repeat of one of the one of the sections of the mountain, but um, you know we're going to skip that. I you know can't jam it quite all in. Um, so that's that's Pikes. So um, off the mountain today, nine a.m. Um, scramble to the airport um, uh, with IMSA this this afternoon, um, but the car is in good hands with Evan Jones, my co-driver, on, on the team there, and uh, you know he'll start to work on that. Um, I'll jump in and practice uh, tomorrow, and you know of course practice qualify. Um, Saturday race, four hour race, one of one of our longer four hours. We have uh, both Watkins Glen and Daytona are four hour events, and then. Um, so I'll, I'll start the race somewhere between an hour and a half, two and a half hours. I'll hop out, jump in a car, and scramble to an airport, <laughs> and, and cheer on Devin from afar. 
I mean, obviously, Pikes Peak is a, a huge event in itself, and and that is going to you know take a lot of your focus this weekend. But you have obviously got the Pilot Challenge title battle to consider in all this. Um, what what you know? Tell me a little bit about the season so far, and and what you think your chances are like for the remaining rounds? Because it it does look like we've got a, a handful of cars now that look like they're going to be in contention for the long haul. Absolutely, you know, there's there's good cars running up front. Um, you know, we we got a little bit of a lead on it um, with a with a solid Daytona and Sebring finish, um, but got reeled back in a little bit. Um, and you know, unfortunately, with that Mid Ohio race with mixed conditions, and we made the wrong tire choice. You know, I, I don't mind I don't mind rain. I, I, I love driving in the wet. Um, I love driving in the dry. But the mixed conditions where um, you know it just kind of comes down to sometimes luck or a crapshoot. It's you know it's not my not my favorite way to race. So I, you know, and of course we were on the on the bad end of, of that um, at Mid Ohio. Um, made the wrong tire choice and and lost some points. But it, it certainly closed the field up a little bit as well. So um, I believe we're right at the front still, not not leading, but but a couple points out, um, but a few, a few more cars have joined us <laughs> in, in the front. So uh, I think it's it's to me a little bit too early in the in the season to to think championship. But I know you absolutely have to win races and score points, and, and that's what we're focused on doing. And you know, maybe three races to the end, we'll see where we are, and um, maybe maybe change our perspective a little bit, maybe change our approach. But but for right now, we're just we're just out there to be at the front, doing a fairly good job of it. And how how big is the Watkins Glen race? Do you think for you guys with the with the BMW? I mean, it's a track that we know is is not the easiest on the tires. You've also got to factor in the fact that it's going to be a very hot weekend. Is is this a is this a round that's very crucial for you guys to score points at? Do you think? Um, you know, I think uh, I, I don't know that we're going to be at the front of the, the front of the pack. I, I liked uh, Mid Ohio uh, for that um, for our BMW and what what suits the current car. Um, I, I've always said Watkins is, is good for, for BMW in general, though, because the, you know, the BMWs just kind of do everything well. They break well. They make good power. Um, I don't think we have quite the downforce, and so I'm a little bit worried about the tire degradation. But um, this is the first race that we are now switching to that Michelin um, harder compound. And in testing of that for us, that's, that's been just a rock-solid, reliable tire. Um, so I think that's something we can lean on. And it's uh, the, you know the weather's hot, but it's you know it's 85 degrees hot versus last year. I think we were pushing 100, um, and the, you know 100 was challenging you know in the car and on the car itself. Um, but I, I think we're a little bit better off than, than last year. And I think we finished second last year, um, so not bad. And and I so I think the car has it in it. Um, so fingers crossed that we'll have a good resort result. And and then of course you know. If you're near the front, you better score the points. If you have the opportunity, if you have the car, um, you better make it happen. So, you know, I, I, you know, I think we will. We we usually convert fairly well. Final question, um, because obviously the one of the big talking points in the paddock this year is, is you know, unsurprisingly, the fact that we've had this this um, tire change from Continental to Michelin, um, and the feedback that I've had has been pretty much positive across the board. Uh, but I've not spoken to anyone who's been in the sort of BMW camp. Um, how are you finding the Michelins on the M4? They're they're just fine. Um, you know, I think uh, I think so often. You, you know, the tires are the same tires that everybody else is on. I I think um, I guess specific to our car model, I, I think 
you know, I, I would point at the Audi and say that's a, that's a car that has um, really good downforce. Maybe not always the the best straight line speed, but because of the downforce, it's going to be really good on on tires and especially a softer tire. So I, I think that gives them a little bit of a nod, um, especially on that eight compound in hotter weather, which we we had at Sebring, um, and and we'll have at Laguna. I'm a little little concerned about being on the the softer compound later later in the season, especially at that that track with with such tremendous tire deck but you know now that we're on the nine I, I, you know we'll we'll see um, we'll see what happens with the field but uh, personally with with our car without comparing our car to others um which i haven't had the opportunity to do yet i feel really good um that it's that it's given us a consistent platform which is was probably our biggest challenge on the eight we had we just had to be a little bit careful not to um not to use too much tire too early with that softer compound well, one of the happiest men in sports car racing this morning, I'm sure, is going to be uh, Mazda's John Doonan. John, that was some race and some weekend. Unbelievable, Graham. I'm still at a loss for words. Uh, can't believe it. And I've sent a text message to all the drivers this morning saying, can you believe it? Because it really still feels a little bit surreal and like a dream, but and it's it's also only just one race. There's so many teams, you know, the Action Expresses of the world, the Wayne Taylors, the Penskys, that have won so many races. And uh, but to be honest with you, the the journey that we've been on, uh, this one feels uh, like a championship or, or you know the greatest of all time at the moment because it's just been such a long journey. It was one of those races where the, the cars, let's be blunt, dominated on pace. That that struck me as being probably a surprise. It was a big surprise. Um, we have a ton of respect and really appreciate the IMSA BOP process. And I really, really believe that they uh, certainly have added a ton of resources, have done a yeoman's job of of making it what it is. The show is unbelievable at, in all levels. Um, these these races, 24 hours, 12 to 1 hour 40 are coming down to the last minutes. And you can't ask for much more for the audience. Um, exciting. And so we knew the cars would be good here and, frankly, hoped that they're just as good at Canadian Tire Motorsport Park and Road America and Laguna Seca and Road Atlanta. Um, but I honestly, I thought we were in for a big fight based on how practice was trending and even qualifying i thought man we we are going to have our hands full it's going to be another major fight between you know any any of the eight eight cars uh, my friend steven charlesley from multimatic said you know any any car eight cars can win this thing uh, every weekend now and so early on those stints i mean we were in a little bit of a state of shock like you know are they all saving it for the end are we are they expecting that you know, something will befall us as it has in the past. It's a long race, but um, thank the Lord it uh, it hung in there and the cars were just magnificent all day. There were two big fights, uh, both towards the end of the race. One with, uh, well, uh, Jean Barboza clearly not wanting to be passed for a second time. That must have left out the mouth. And then, well, who would you least want to be between you and your first win but Juan Pablo Montoya? Uh, tell, take us through those moments. 
Yeah, so uh, massive respect for uh, Bob Johnson and the Action Express organization. They've won so many races and so many championships. So um, they're there to battle. They're there to win. They're there to put themselves in a position to win. So as frustrating it is when you know you're 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 sort of dicing it up with a car that's down a lap. You know, we can't you can't fault anybody in the series um, for wanting to to stay in the fight, especially in a six-hour race, and based on the way uh, the regulations work in IMSA, you always have a chance to get it back. And so, um, yes, was it was it tense? Was it frustrating? Was Tristan and and Olivier at the time getting frustrated? You bet. But um, you know, I've got massive respect for everyone in that team and, and the driver lineup, and they were doing what they had to do. And so. Sure, made from exciting moments, I'll tell you. But um, that one in particular. But and then the same goes for the Penske organization. You can't fault um, them for um, obviously taking an opportunity on that. What was going to be a yellow, they jumped in. They they jumped uh, to the front, and uh, they were doing everything they could. And fortunately, uh, Harry and and uh, Oliver um, got by him and. Uh, even then, we had some more tense moments at the end for us. It was, it was a wild day. Well, at least you've got a souvenir for the garage wall. I'm sure you'll be taking that part of that engine cover, get the boys to sign it, and put it on the wall there, John. What, what, what happened there? Ironically, uh, ironically, we also have a souvenir from the six car. Uh, when Harry and uh, JPM touched, um, we picked up uh, part of their um, front uh, side pod, so to speak. So... <laughs> Uh, they were uh, the, the crew. The crew was joking about maybe trying to get him to sign it, but I'm not so interested in that. <laughs> was was that the the incident that caused the damage to the rear deck? Um, I think that uh, there was also, I believe, a, a slight touch with the GT car, but that that definitely um, uh, on the on the left side. That touch when Harry uh, went to the apex and was able to get by and eight. That caused the engine cover, I think, to just loosen a bit. And ironically, after looking at it at the end of the race, it was it was simply, uh, it was almost like it was hinged. And maybe we need to think about doing that to make ease of working on the car. <laughs> but uh, it was uh, it was almost like a, uh, a, a better there in the UK. It was it was like a, an old uh, old um, Bugatti or an MG where you could just the hinge the hood up a little bit and work on it but it was all attached it was just uh, flopped over uh it's a brilliant result for the 55 well the fact that it came home with a one two just i guess adds to that legend uh but at what point did the guys get the message it's time to hold station um before the race went green yeah and i, w- I woke up yesterday morning and i had a, a gut feel that we needed a sit down with the drivers and um, I texted Larry Holt and Stephen Charlesley from Multimatic and I said I feel the need to just have a meeting this morning and get everybody's mindset in the right place and I got to tell you the six guys that um, are in the seat right now um, all wanted a team victory and the meeting was very short it was behind the pit box and it was a clear message that a Mazda has the potential of winning today. It doesn't matter what numbers it, it is. It's just either one of them is going to be a red a red Mazda. And if we're in that position 
and unanimously all the drivers said you just tell us from the box we'll do whatever you say and frankly there wasn't a lot of that um at the end when um we were running one two and um oliver was was on harry's bumper um no one really asked about it it was you know we looked at the 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 difference to to us and the six car and there was no need to fight um and we agreed and, and everybody just kind of uh, it was it was pretty quiet on the pit box from say 30 minutes to go on after the final round of stops and when we got by it was just um everybody was quiet and i think <laughs> watching the clock tick down great stuff uh, now i guess the next question is um, you know almost penultimate question really does this feel like maybe the monkey's off the back now big relief um without a doubt um we from the beginning of this thing said we've been coming to win and so many close moments and so many people fans friends dealers of uh, mazda dealers that is and racers mazda racers saying it's going to come it's going to come and you know so many people in the paddock other oem partners other team members saying uh man we, we sure hope you guys get one soon and so um huge relief um Alwyn Springer on uh, Thursday night uh, came up to me at the uh, International Motorsports Research Center dinner uh, that honored Bobby Rahal, and he said, would you win an effing race? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he texted me last night with congratulations, and I said, uh, Thursday night you delivered the orders, and fortunately we were able to deliver the result that we have been wanting so badly to deliver for everyone at Mazda, whether it's somebody driving a Mazda up the motorway or racing a Mazda or selling them or designing and building them. Um, it's a really special family, and uh, our brand is all about inspiration. And to see it all come together was very inspiring for me and I hope inspiring for everybody in the community. Well, let's see whether or not that leads to greater things. There's still a long way to go in this championship, and it's pretty clear that uh, you've got the wind beneath, literally beneath the wings of those two Mazda RT24Ps, John. Uh, onwards to Canada. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're going to really short turnaround. Uh, the team's rebuilding the cars today. I'm on the way to the airport. Uh, everybody's kind of scattering, but we're literally going to reunite here in about 72 hours, and Hopefully, um, a track like Canadian Tire Motorsport Park also caters to our package, and so does uh, the remaining uh, other three. So, yeah, you know, the monkey's off the back, but uh, I can't wait to share my thoughts with the team this morning in my post-weekend briefing, and it's going to be all about uh, holding our heads high but not having our chests puffed out because we know what the level of competition is in the WeatherTech Championship. And, um, you know, everyone's going to come to the next one loaded for bear. Excellent stuff. For now, John Doonan, thank you very much for your time and good luck in Canada. Thank you so much for the opportunity and all the listeners out there. We appreciate you guys tuning in. I've got Eric Kerrib with me now, the owner of Motorsports in Action, a team that races in Michelin Pilot Challenge with McLaren. Hey, Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. 
Um, obviously, it's a big week for you um, because it's it's obviously the home the home race for the team. Before we get into the challenges of, of racing at CTMP in, in Pilot Challenge with the 570S GT4, I, I want to talk a little bit about the season so far because I think it's safe to say it's it's you know it's had its little ups and downs, but overall it, it's been a, a real success for you guys, hasn't it? it's a quick turnaround so you can go straight into racing again it's a, it's, it's a nice rhythm to be able to do that I'm sure and you've obviously got the big one at CTMP this weekend just tell, give me a sort of a flavour of what it means for, for you as part of the sort of Canadian contingent that uses this round each year as sort of the, the chance to, to be able to race in front of home fans and home guests No it's fantastic that's one of the you know it's our home race technically speaking and as well as Compass probably theirs more than ours because they are from Toronto um, but yes we have it makes it easier for, for friends family guests fans they all come down from Montreal and come support uh, and it's a nice venue you know other places are more remote and difficult with hotels um, as you know like the Glen and Lime Rock and what have you so it's, 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 a, it's a great it's right after Canada Day we, uh, we feel good track that not only is our home track but it's actually best suited for our car that is the reference track for our car as far as the characteristics and uh we want to get back fast because we, you know we left the glen not where we wanted to be and uh i'm glad that there's a there's a quick turnaround for sure and we get to do it in front of our fans you've obviously got Jesse Lazar and uh, Corey Fergus driving for you, and we know what they're capable of. Those are two of the best drivers that, that GS has to offer. Um, but like you say, the car should be suited to CTMP. Tell us a little bit more about that. Give us a bit more insight on, on where you think the strengths of the 570S GT4 are in its current form. Obviously, it's had a little bit of a tweak this year, um, and, and why it suits that circuit. Yeah, it's, um, you know, in, in full transparency, also, the, the Glen doesn't suit, suit our, our car. It was, you know, the gearing was, we were in between gears and the corners are are not what suits the car. I think the 570, it loves um, either second gear corners to get out. It's got great torque and really fast sweepers. Like if you saw the race at the Glen, you know, we were really, our strength was from corner one going up the S and after that we were in, in, in trouble against the other manufacturers. So, so the short track, the most sport, the, the, the old school flow of the track, the, the fast sweepers, and then the, you know, 5AB, hit the brakes, turn and punch yourself out of that corner 
it's tailor-made for our car. You know, our car has some weight, um, so it likes to keep moving. And it doesn't like to be in between gears. And we found that the Glen, we were in between gears several places. So that is the reference. How we do there is the best, um, you know, track for us. So we'll really have, we'll really have an idea of, you know, the state of the car and performance once we finish most more. And we knew that the Glen and DIR coming up also are, are two of the tracks that are not really suited for us. So we're looking forward to it. That's for sure. It, this is a, a big season for IMSA, isn't it? We've got obviously the festivities surrounding the fact that it's the 50th anniversary. The WeatherTech Championship's doing incredibly well. It's got a great TV package, a lot of really good teams. But it mustn't be forgotten that that support package it carries around with it is, is fantastic as well, isn't it? Give some of the listeners a bit of a sense of just how competitive Pilot Challenge is, if it's something that they don't follow specifically. Because it's got manufacturers, it's got good drivers, it's got stunning-looking cars... And it goes to, you know, the, the fantastic selection of circuits that the IMSA has each year. Yeah, no, it's absolutely the best uh, GT racing, I think, in the world. And I say that with as much non-bias as, as I can, having, being a fan of other series and watching them when I'm at home. So I keep my eye on, you know, European series, Asian series. And I, I think that the level of talent that we have here and the young drivers that are, that are in our field are just, Unbelievable. I mean, a lot of them do double duty. They, they'll go to GTD or GTLM, and, and they just, it's 28 cars on the field, all different manufacturers. IMSA's doing the best job they can, you know, for now. With the BOP, obviously, I think the, uh, you know, the BMW and the Mercedes got away from us a little bit. Maybe they'll make some adjustments, but they try to keep the field as tight as possible and leave it up to the drivers. And the teams, you know, to make the right calls and the right strategy and execute the right pit stops. Um, I think it's the only series that I know of at this caliber that runs GT4s with, with real hot pit stops. So driver change, fuel, pit stop, every second you lose or gain in the pit is a, is a second you gain or lose on the track. And that's what makes it super appealing as opposed to sprint racing. So yeah, it, it's got the drivers, if you look at their resumes, uh, online, which I do because you know I like to keep to know who the competition is. It's unbelievable their resume, their, their Wikipedia page or their driver database. They've won championships and everything. They've done wins, fastest laps, and these are all in our series. So it, it really is the highest level of competition. I, I really truly believe that in the GT4 series for himself. I'm interested on in your thoughts as a team owner. Um, who's part of the IMSA paddock, what you think of things like Prototype Challenge now, because it does offer, you know, of a similar level, should we say, of motorsport, um, quite a cost-effective way of going racing. And we're seeing, obviously, with the new LMP3 cars that are going to be um, coming in for next season, but not not quite yet in, in Prototype Challenge, but that seems to be growing as well. What are your thoughts on, on racing in Prototype Challenge as well? Well, uh, you know, quite honestly, it's not really my goal... Um we spoke last time I think my end goal still is to be in GTD um, and, and stick with McLaren I think that that's that the fact that they introduced the sprint championship this year uh, is something that's you know much more cost effective than going straight from GT4 to the full GTD season um, it's an architecture that, that we're familiar with uh, as far as a car um, you know you know my associates from McLaren for a long time now so we, we have familiarity with the whole group, the program, the car, the architecture and 
that's my end game. Uh, not that any other, not that any other, you know, series isn't worth exploring at any given time. If we had an opportunity and there was money involved for somebody who wanted to run, we would have, of course, explored. But for us, it's really a GT4 until the next step would be a GTD. I've got to ask you in terms of McLaren because obviously we've had four races of this season now, and and there was you know so many changes in the back end of, of McLaren's customer racing program um, over the last sort of twelve months, and obviously it's something that that you and all the other McLaren customer teams have been keeping a, a wry eye on. How's it been this year? Have you been impressed with the changes they've made? Obviously they've, they've updated the car, but customer service is something they're focusing on. Have, have they met your expectations? must instill enough confidence in you to say that if you did you know jump up to to racing in gtd that you would carry on using their platforms i know that you have a particular affinity for the brand and maybe there's um, plenty of listeners out there who wouldn't know just how how um well law i guess is the word um, you are to mclaren but do, would would you you hesitate at all in, in picking the 720s platform if you were to go to gtd Um, you know, involves like you know, four endurance races. Even if it wasn't the sprint, it needs 
sitting reliable. These cars go at ridiculously fast speed. They have tons of load, tons of Gs. Everything has to stick on the car and, and work all the time. And uh, if McLaren keeps the reliability up for the rest of the year, I think that they'll have a lot of customers. From speaking to, to you and, and to some of your team over the last sort of 12 months since I was first introduced, it's one of the things that surprised me about the operation that you've got is it's far more than just a, a team that's racing in GS. you able to give listeners a bit of an insight on just how big Motorsports and Action's operation is because, as, as I understand, you have involvement in, in other motorsport championships as well. Yeah, it's the shop actually is a, it's a multi-faceted department shop. We have, uh, we build sports cars, we build, we restore classic cars, uh, old Ferraris, old Jags, we have other, you know, departments, but the racing department outside of IMSA, we also build uh, exclusively for um, Nissan Canada and Nissan Japan, the uh, Nissan Micro Cup, which is a Canadian uh, Group B uh, racing series here, um, and with that, we field some customer cars as well, so we'll always, um, you know, run anywhere from four to five cars for customers, um, but the, the actual car comes from our shop. It's specced at our shop, and the only way to get one is through more sports and action. So we designed the whole car with the blessing of uh, Nissan Japan. We have the um, you know CAD FIA-approved cages, and we had to do uh, 50 hours of continuous running. Well, not conti- continuous, meaning you know with breaks. Uh, with the, you know, but like three, four hours at a time for a total of 50 hours for Nissan to give us the green light because they wanted to make sure their product, which was never intended for racing, would you know would work, would not fall with failures and transmission and engine issues, and it never did. We did the full 50 hours, and the cars were running as if they came out of the showroom. So that's one of our other racing endeavors, and we do some club racing for for gentlemen racing as well. We'll do arrive and drive packages, but. IMSA really is the focus. I mean, we, if you want to really consider our racing efforts, it really is IMSA and, and winning the championship this year, or trying to, anyways. Yeah, and that's, that was going to be my final question. Um, there's a seven-point gap now. Um, from Your guys are sitting in third at the moment. We've got plenty of races left to go. Just just leave us with what it's going to take for you guys to, to win this championship this year. Uh, you know, a lot of it, some of it is not in our hands and, and not, like I said, I think IMSA are doing a fantastic job as far as VOP up to now, but they need to react quickly. The biggest problem we had last year, uh, as you witnessed, was the first six months of the year we were nowhere to be seen. We were midfield and we had no adjustments, no help. Um, and I think they've taken a new approach. They're not just focusing on VMAX. They're focusing on lap times. And to discuss what's out of our hands first, the BOP needs to be there. Doesn't mean we need to be the fastest every weekend. We, you know, as long as we open our doors and we have an ability to win with proper driving, clean driving, great pit stops, great strategy, we need to be able to win. I think uh, at the Glen this weekend there was nothing we could have done, even if we had everything right to win. The pace was there, so with a little bit of help from Insta to get BOP right for all cars, and, I, and you know, we're not the worst off, believe it or not, and I'm not, uh, our competitors, I, I believe, at Porsche, they're, they're worse off than us, um, but if IMSA gets the BOP right and acts quickly, uh, I think we just need to execute. We have, like you said earlier, the best, I, I believe, some of the best two drivers on the grid, we have a great car, 
flawless. Uh, our strategy has, has been on the cautious side, but I think, uh, Stephen, this weekend we're going to turn it up. Um, you know, cautious got us left points on the table for us in the last two races that we could have gotten more. So we're going to turn up the, uh, the heat for most sport and we're going to go towards an aggressive approach for the win as opposed to just nurturing championship points. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time, Eric, and I wish you the best of luck this weekend. I've got with me now Pierre Nicolet, he's the Executive Officer of Ligier Automotive. Oh Pierre, well, before we go any further and, and talk about the big topics like IMSA DPI and, and Hypercar and, and where Ligier stands on that, I want, I want to talk about something that's a bit more of a, um, a closer to home topic. We, we've, got, we've got the new LMP3 cars coming out next year, we've seen them for the first time um, at Le Mans. Give me your impressions uh, before we go anywhere else on on what what we've got to come with with the new the new LMP3s. Um, hello everyone. Um, so we've presented the new Ligier GSP320 uh, at Le Mans 24 Hours. Uh, we have uh, submitted uh, all manufacturers have submitted the the CAD files of their entire new car for 2020 to the ACO uh, prior to the first of July. Um, and uh, we are undergoing uh, on-track testing uh, now to develop and finalize uh, the car for for teams and drivers uh, to test the car uh, by September. Uh, we have already done uh, uh, straight-line testing and uh, uh, on-track testing with our development car using the new engine VK56, and uh, we will continue to do so for the entire uh, month of July. Uh, we are happy uh, with um, the, the team's um, feedbacks on uh, the update uh, on the car. Uh, some have already uh, co- committed, uh, like United Autosport, AF Corsé uh, and other European team to, to run the car for 2020. Uh, so we need to to continue uh, and uh, finish the development of the car for the teams to, to start their program uh, by uh, the end of the year to, to be ready for the start of the next uh, season. When we spoke last about LMP3, you told me that you, you didn't think um, customer teams would take wouldn't take them much time to get used to the new chassis and the new engine. Um, you know, before next season, once they get their cars. Now that you've actually hit the track of it, what what are your impressions with with the the updated JSP320 and the engine? Is it still what you expected? Yes, I think in terms of uh, drivability uh, and uh, operations from a team's perspective or a driver's perspective, it, it remains a, a very easy uh, car to operate. Uh, and with the addition of traction control, uh, it should be even easier to, to drive for uh, beginners, uh, to drivers so I, I don't think there is any uh, any hurdles for a team that have been operating uh, LMP3 in the past uh, to get uh, accustomed with, with the new one 
and for uh, a racing team in general, I think it's a pretty easy car to to operate. So now that we've seen um, we've seen at least two of the other chassis um, at Le Mans, we saw the new Janetta, we saw the new Adest, the, the Duquesne, the Duquesne chassis appeared to be a very slight evolution of the old one. So we're not sure exactly where they're where they stand right now. But what, what are your impressions of the competition and and how how hard is it going to be for you guys to retain such a huge customer base? Because we understand there's obviously over a hundred cars in circulation that you've got of the old chassis. Uh, only the future uh, will will tell. I think uh, every uh, existing uh, team in LMP3 uh, will look at uh, uh, what the, all of the manufacturers have to to offer for the next regulation. New new team uh, willing to enter in LMP3 uh, will look at uh, what they they see uh, available as of a new car. Or uh, what they can do with an updated car. Uh, I think it's very, it's very early to say uh, where uh, everybody stands. Uh, uh, three manufacturers presented uh, what their car uh, will be uh, in 2020, uh, and uh, we are uh, happy to see uh, to see them. Uh, joining the field of LMP3 for 2020 uh, and hopefully we have uh, a diversity of cars uh, for next year and we all compete each other uh, with the same regulation. Do you expect that you'll retain um, the majority of your current customers? Is that is that how it how it feels at the moment? <laughs> like I said, it's too early to, to say. Obviously, we have done... Uh, a huge uh, R&D uh, and restyling of the car uh, to 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 stay uh, at the top of the the performance of the new regulation, uh, not only to satisfy all of our existing uh, teams and drivers, but to 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 maintain um, the competitiveness of the LMP3 uh, against uh, other type of cars. So uh, hopefully we will satisfy uh, all of the existing teams, uh, Ligier teams and new, and new ones. But it's too early to say. Uh, nobody has tried the car uh, yet, uh, has tried any car, I believe, yet, except our development drivers. So... Time, time will tell. Perfect. Let's move on to talking about um, Hypercar, because that was obviously a, a huge, huge press conference um, <laughs> that we saw at Le Mans from the ACO. I've, I've spoken to many, many people in and around the paddock, um, their thoughts on, on on where this new formula is going. Where does Ligier stand in this? What's your sort of general impression of, of what we saw? Ligier is under, I think, like uh, most of uh, OEMs and the constructors, uh, is uh, undergoing uh, an evaluation of this new regulation uh, to see where the opportunities uh, lies lie uh, for us as a constructor. Uh, We have the design capacity, we have the development capacity uh, to build uh, an hypercar. Um, now we need to look 
at all of the op options that uh, gives us the dysregulation and and uh, pick carefully what to work on in the next years. Are you pleased with with the way that this has all been presented? Obviously, it was a bit later than than many would have liked, but the actual final regulations. Do you think? it presents you guys with enough of an opportunity to actually get involved in this? There is a, I would say there is always an opportunity with new reg regulation. Um, so to be quite, uh, quite straightforward, uh, we need sometimes uh, to investigate the, all of these opportunities, technically and financially. Uh, for Ligier to uh, to undertake su such uh, such work uh, and such program, but for sure there is opportunity uh, op opportunities with uh, prototype uh, hybrid, prototype non hybrid, uh, road car chassis uh, base, uh, and uh, it gives a lot of uh, possibilities for any actor in the industry uh, to join. Um, we need to uh, to really work uh, work on all of these possibilities and then decide uh, what we can offer as a private constructor uh, to a team or to an OEM to join uh, to join forces together and, and try to go uh, win Le Mans and the WEC uh, overall. That's that's what we want in the end uh, with our Ligier design team. Uh, is to to design and produce a car that that wins Le Mans overall. So this this gives us the opportunity to work on the on such uh, 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 exciting and ambitious uh, program. We know that there was the potential for for DPI to to be part of the solution for the ACO and it was a bit of a plan B. But that didn't happen, and with Ligier having you know a stake in in what IMS has got with DPI at the moment with with the Nissan, um, and and currently not in in LMP one, are you in any way disappointed that we haven't got a global rule set, or do you just think of it as a, a brand new opportunity and, and and welcome that? Um, we, I mean, it's I, I, I'm happy. I'm not in the feet of the the ACO. I think this new regulation of hypercar gives everyone a new opportunity to to, to start. Uh, it's very hard to say uh, if another decision would have been uh, better for for WEC and, and, and ACO. So I'm not uh, uh, disappointed or happy. Uh, I'm let's put it this way. I'm happier uh, that the regulation has been out and that we can evaluate now what our, our options are hmm. uh, but obviously it's uh, uh, I'll be happy when uh, when we'll have good news to announce related to this new new category um. <laughs> And let's then change on to to IMSA. We just mentioned DPI there, and and DPI two point is is another talking point um, in sports car racing at the moment because that's obviously forming. Um, Scott Atherton says he's expecting to have a draft of the regulations done by the end of this year, giving plenty of time before twenty twenty two when these come in. 
What's where, where does Ligier currently stand on that? Um, are you expecting to be part of these new regulations at this point? Uh, we we are part of the we are a constructor uh, for uh, Nissan in the current regulation. So we are taking uh, uh, part of uh, all the, the technical working group related to uh, to the new regulation and. Uh, uh, we we will uh, do uh, everything to be uh, present uh, when the season starts in 2022 with a, a DPI 2.0, uh, whatever the regulation uh, uh, end, end up to be. Um, it's our, like the hypercar, we want to be uh, uh, present at the top level at the highest level of endurance racing in the in the US, so uh, we appreciate the the technical uh, uh, discussions we currently IMSA um, is currently having with all of the parties involved in uh, in the IMSA WeatherTech series. Give, give us a flavour of how those discussions are going. Is it all positive at the moment? I know there's obviously the sticking point of hybridisation being part of that and, and how far they go with it, but in general, do you feel like it's it's working towards a poly- positive solution? I think uh, it's, uh, it's, it's always positive to put uh, every uh, pros and cons of a new regulation and... Uh, I think all OEMs are, uh, and constructors are uh, saying what they what they're thinking. So yes, it, it's very positive, and IMSA is also saying what uh, what they, they foresee and what they they would like to see introduced, and for what reasons, and for what purpose. And so yes, so far it has been very positive, and I don't we don't see a reason to to not continue in this direction with. Uh, with all the parties involved. We've obviously got a little bit of time before 2022 um, and we hear talks of other manufacturers joining in before that time, um, pretty much by the week at times, um, rumours and all sorts of speculation. Um, Can you comment on any of that at the moment? Is Ligier currently involved in discussions with manufacturers and is there any hope that we'll see additional manufacturer entries in in DPI before 2.0 comes along, do you think? No, no specific comments. Uh, we are uh, we are working with OEMs on, on DPI uh, on DPI programs. <laughs>